This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Did the early Christians believe their myths? Like most ancient and modern people, early Christians made efforts to present their myths in the most believable ways. In this eye-opening work, M. David Litva explores how and why what later became the four canonical Gospels take on historical cast that remains vitally important for many Christians today, offering an in-depth comparison with other Greco-Roman stories that have been shaped to seem like history. Litva shows how the evangelists responded to the pressures of Greco-Roman literary culture by using well-known historiographical tropes, such as the mention of famous rulers and kings, geographical notices, the introduction of eyewitnesses, vivid presentation, alternative reports, and so on. In this way, the evangelists deliberately shaped myths about Jesus into historical discourse to maximize their believability for ancient audiences. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. M. David Litva about his new book, How the Gospels Became History, Jesus and Mediterranean Myths. Dr. Litva is a scholar of ancient Mediterranean religions and research fellow at the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. His most recent books include Desiring Divinity, Self-Deification in Ancient Jewish and Christian Mythmaking, and Hermetica II, The Excerpts of Stobaeus, Papyrus Fragments, and Ancient Testimonies. Dr. Litva, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying the Bible and its contemporary Greco-Roman literature. Well, I'd be glad to. I'm currently research fellow at the Institute for Critical uh, Religion and Critical Inquiry, uh, which is a division of the Australian Catholic University, or ACU, uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, And this is a very dynamic place to do research in early Christianity. And I have uh, six or seven colleagues in early Christianity. and we all complement each other's interests uh, and experiences. Uh, how I got interested in this topic, um, uh, really since I was a child, I've had an interest in uh, strange stories regarding divine persons, heroes, gods, demons, diamonds, angels. And two of the greatest rep- repositories of such stories were the biblical 
documents and uh, what goes under the name of Greco-Roman mythology, which is uh, just the cultural lore of the ancient Mediterranean. And I can remember reading through as a kid the whole Bible and getting, uh, remember, a second grade level handbook of Greek mythology filled with all sorts of interesting pictures and captions and stories that really fired my imagination. And um, when I entered um, divinity school, I became very interested in heroes, uh, what we might think of as superheroes today, human beings who upgrade into gods or um, beings of various grades of divinity, which became a major research niche for me early in my career. And the buzzword here is, uh, is deification. Uh, some people prefer theosis. Uh, and during my PhD training at the University of Virginia, I always had one foot in classical studies and uh, the other in, in religious studies. And uh, at least at the time I was there, I noticed that the departments uh, really quite surprisingly rarely interacted. Um, the networks were pretty loose uh, or non-existent. Uh, of course, the departments were in different buildings, but more importantly, they had built up different intellectual traditions and methodologies and ways of thinking and, and doing research. Um, of course, classics has always been very philologically based, um, focusing on the learning of languages. And religious studies today seems to have increasingly uh, moved away from that and uh, let its language requirements go. Uh, but there are other differences in the kind of training that is received both in classics and religious studies. But it just so turned out that even though I have my degree in religious studies, my first job was in the UVA classics department. And from there, I went on to teach Greek and Roman mythology uh, at the College of, of William and Mary um, and their beautiful campus. And I organized my classes uh, since I was kind of a, a hybrid centaur. Uh, I organized my classes looking at both uh, what we might think of as biblical mythology and Greek mythology, and on the principle of comparing the stories and stories that had rarely been compared, um, uh, or at least uh, much of the comparisons had kind of, uh, that had first been done in the 19th and 20th, early 20th century uh, weren't being done anymore. And uh, I often wondered why. So I, I committed myself uh, over the course of many years to um, helping to increase the conversation between classics and religious studies. And I guess you could call this book uh, the fruit of that research. Mm. Wow, what an interesting story. And I'm, I'm so glad it has shaped where you are today. And, and um, yeah, so let's talk about this book then. What inspired you to, to write this work? Well, um, the practical reason I've already gotten into, um, it was to increase the interaction between experts in classical mythology and uh, biblical studies, uh, you know, and PhD programs in 
biblical or religious studies or early Christianity today, um, there are no requirements to learn the cultural lore of Greek and Romans, that is classical mythology. And so a lot of those stories and, and heritage um, is more or less unknown by scholars of the New Testament, even though that was the mass media of the time when the early Christian documents were being written. And so I, I really wanted to um, go back uh, and renew a topic that had been of interest of, in the early 20th century, uh, Rudolf Boltmann being a, a, a major player, um, but his program of uh, demythologization uh, was uh, basically a theological program that uh, didn't stand the test of time for a variety of reasons. And since then, uh, the study of uh, myth, myth and uh, biblical studies uh, has uh, somewhat grown distant. And uh, my attempt here is to, to renew that. But um, I guess on a more personal or deeper level, um, I was always interested um, in the question of why historicity was valued as the, the rhetoric of, of truth in, in Western culture. You know, media today still appeals to people, documentaries and uh, movies and uh, programs of all sorts still catches people by the caption based on a true story. Um, and uh, people are very attracted uh, to history and uh, to history, the History Channel and various other programming which investigates uh, the real truth, so to speak, behind uh, ancient events and archaeology is a, uh, was a exploded in the 20th century to kind of uh, historically prove uh, many of the biblical events. And uh, in a sense, if, if one could um, find uh, Noah's Ark, one could prove the story was correct. And, and you know, that's a maybe a somewhat crude example, although, of course, attempts to find the Ark continue. But um, on a certain more subtle level, that way of thinking um, really continues to pervade our society and biblical studies that um, if it's not historical, it's not true. And a lot of Christian apologists use the discourse of historicity in a, in a, to shore up um, the truth of what they're saying and even present uh, so-called historical facts as the main evidence for the truth of their religion. And I always was curious about this um, uh, and uh, wanted to learn, uh, brush up, as it were, on a bit of the theoretical background of, you know, what is history anyway? And why do we worship this goddess called history and think that she holds the secret of truth? Uh, and why, in my own field of biblical studies, is so much intellectual ener energy expended on the so-called historical Jesus. Um, this historical Jesus has always struck me as the supreme myth of our own field. Um, 
what are we looking for when we're searching for the historical Jesus um, on one level? Um, we want to, I think, um, have a sense that this, these stories are on some level true. Uh, we might not believe um, every detail, but we uh, want to reassure ourselves that there is a historical basis and we're talking about so-called real events. Because if they're not real, then the truth value of the events is threatened. Um, so I don't have a problem. I just want to be clear with the historical Jesus or uh, studying the historical Jesus. All of that is, is well and good. My question is why? Why is it so important uh, for us to get the facts right, especially when what we call facts really uh, are just sort of inner scholarly agreements about what might have happened or what is probable, uh, which are, of course, based on human uh, structures of plausibility. What we've been trained or socialized to believe is actually possible. Um, and constructions based on those assumptions about what is plausible and rewoven into narratives that apparently we can believe today, narratives that end up on the History Channel uh, and for various reasons inspire Christians, uh, perhaps many others, to believe in the truth of their religion. Um, I'm interested in why that process uh, occurs. And so one could think of this study as having that underlying question, what do we mean by history and why do we think that it is so connected to truth right yeah and so in that discussion and in your work you identify the genre historia and uh, I'd, I'd love if you could kind of talk about what it is and, and how it relates to the gospels so when uh, a young child would go to what the equivalent of our elementary education, our elementary school, when that child would go to grammar school, um, they would learn about three kinds of stories. And these are basically uh, very broad, generic classifications. And one kind of story taught in grammar school in the ancient Mediterranean was called uh, Historia. And Historia is, uh, was generally defined as a kind of story that is supposed to relate events that occurred in the past. And it's often said that the Greeks invented Historia, um, uh, Herodotus, uh, Thucydides, uh, these uh, giants, um, gave us um, what eventually became our own genre of history. But Historia in the ancient sense is that kind of story that is supposed to or is assumed to relate events that occurred in the past. And ancient grammarians distinguished this kind of story from what they called mythos, which is a kind of story 
that relates events that either people thought did not happen or could not have happened. And uh, for instance, uh, the story of the horse Pegasus arising from the blood of the Gorgon Medusa. Um, that wasn't even believable to the ancients. I mean, uh, so that would be taken as a, as a mythos. And there was, interestingly, an intermediate category called plasma, uh, which um, sometimes translated fiction. And this story, kind of story, relates events that could have happened but did not happen. And here we might think of the stories that appeal, appear in his, uh, novels or historical novels. And we should keep in mind that the novel uh, was also uh, invented by uh, Greek culture uh, in this very era in which the Gospels arose as well. And what's interesting is uh, these three kinds of story, uh, many ancient authors tended to blend plasma and mythos together uh, so that uh, it wasn't really uh, clear um, what those boundaries were. And there developed a very common rhetoric in the ancient world of mythos versus historium. That is, uh, if one author wanted to accuse another author of not speaking the truth, and this often happened among so-called historians, they could say that, hey, you're talking about mythos or mythoi uh, in the plural, and I'm trying to do historia, uh, which is a way, uh, became a way, uh, and it was adopted in uh, the pastoral epistles of trying to denigrate uh, the truth value of some, typically somebody else's story, somebody else's story that, uh, well, you didn't like because that story uh, in some way undermined your identity or you found it implausible or uh, it just sounded crazy or, or uh, was told to children. And, and so you could denigrate that kind of story by calling it a mythos. And this very ancient binary between mythos and historia uh, gave birth to, uh, in, through many various paths uh, and over many centuries, to our own binary of myth versus history. Um, what, the, what the issue is here, though, is often myth and, whether we're talking about the ancient mythos and historia or the modern myth and history, these typically aren't actually binaries, except in a rhetorical sense, they're more like ideal types that in reality are constantly being negotiated because all of us, depending upon our identities, depending upon where we're coming from, what communities we belong to, what religious communities or groups we belong to, we're constantly negotiating what is plausible, what is possible, what is probable, uh, and that is constantly being culturally negotiated. And culturally, we're growing up and being socialized to believe that certain things are plausible and probable. And uh, in the ancient world, there was an interesting phenomena, literary phenomena, in the period that the Gospels were written, that ancient historians, people who identified themselves as historians, would 
look back at what we call myth or classical mythology and be involved in making those stories look as much like history as possible. Because you have to think that these uh, stories, again, what we call classical mythology, were the cultural heritage of the ancient Greeks. And so stories that we would call myth today were, to the ancients, very much history. A key example here is the Trojan War. A lot of students in high school and college will read Homer's two epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, as part of their course in classical mythology. Well, of course, to the ancient Greeks, this wasn't uh, mythology in, in any straight sense. They all believed that the Trojan War happened, that it was true, that there was a man called Achilles, that there was a war uh, between Asia and Europe, and there was a man called Agamemnon, and all of that was true. But uh, it had been, they thought, spiced up by poetic uh, diction and Homer, whoever he was or whatever he represented, had uh, in a sense added a bunch of details that had a kind of fantastical flavor. So a key example is Achilles's mother happened to be a sea goddess, what we, we might think of as a, a mermaid. And, you know, that's not only unbelievable to us today, that was actually unbelievable to the cultural elite during the, the late first century. And so they were always in the business of trying to make their uh, cultural lore look like history and look more and more like history. And so this was the, a literary phenomena that was going on uh, during the time that the Gospels were written. And um, based on this phenomena, um, I've presented a new category called mythic historiography. And this kind of historiography basically looks at fantastical tales and tries to put them into historiographical form. So they'll say that, Oh, uh, for instance, yes, uh, Theseus, everybody knows Theseus, he fought the Minotaur. Actually, this Minotaur wasn't a guy with a bull's head, um, because that's just sort of silly, uh, but it was actually a Cretan general or a general on the Isle of Crete, and he was working for Minos, and he was a really nasty kind of a guy, and Theseus beat him and uh, in this underground dungeon called the Labyrinth, which had a bunch of doors and corridors, so it began to be thought of as a gigantic maze, and the tale was spiced up, and uh, it was brought back into history by using certain historiographical tropes to bring it back into the realm of plausibility, at least for someone, uh, an educated a Greek person. So to sum up, it, this uh, historia, um, getting back to your main question, this movement of mythos to historia and trying to make fantastical tales look historical is what I'm calling mythic historiography. And that is the genre uh, in which I'm trying to conceptualize, uh, perhaps reconceptualize, the Gospels 
as uh, not just historiography, but mythic historiography. That is fantastical tales written in historiographical form. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And so in your book, you argue that while the Gospels and Greek lore don't share a causative relationship, um, that but they do share what you call dynamic cultural interaction. Uh, and I was wondering if you could kind of talk about how were the Gospels influenced by Greco-Roman literature? Well, I kind of set up my comparisons um, by being in dialogue with two other groups of people who compare. And one of those groups are called the Jesus mythicists, those folks who, for a variety of reasons, uh, think that Jesus did not in fact exist as a historical person, or that he did, but that um, nothing of what was written about him actually relates to that historical individual. Um, and uh, these mythicists will use Greco-Roman mythology, Greco-Roman cultural lore. Uh, in fact, they'll use any, any kind of cultural lore that they can get their hands on to attempt to show that the uh, stories of the Gospels essentially uh, aren't true. And so you can think of them as kind of the reverse of an evangelical or fundamentalist who would be tempted to say, hey, look at over here. It's These things are historical. They have historicity. Ergo, they are true. And what the mythicist is trying to do with that same philosophy um, about the relation of, of historicity and truth, they're trying to say, hey, look at over here. These stories are just based on myths, so ergo, they're not historical. Ergo, they're not true. Now, that I deal with um, in chapter one of the book. I'm going to leave that aside uh, for the moment and talk about the second group that I try to address when I um, talk about dynamic cultural interaction. And that group is a, a current group in the field of biblical studies uh, called uh, the Mimesis uh, Critics, or who call themselves uh, that. Uh, and uh, the uh, major figure here is uh, Dennis R. MacDonald, has written a number of works uh, and has produced a kind of comparative method that uh, has been widely, and I think uh, justly criticized. Um, but the main point of it is to make fairly rigid and direct genetic connections between gospel stories and uh, uh, Homer or uh, uh, the, the Homeric writings uh, and, and recently um, uh, writings from Euripides and some of the other uh, greats. Um, and the whole purpose of this kind of comparison is to sort of connect the dots uh, between, uh, to show how gospel stories are constructed out of these well-known cultural um, uh, stories, uh, mostly from Homer. And um, when I talk about dynamic cultural interaction, I'm essentially saying to folks that I don't much care for that kind of comparison that is mainly focused on making genetic 
connections between literature. Of course, that did happen in the ancient world. Uh, no one is saying that that, that, that didn't happen. Uh, Virgil, of course, was, uh, had his Homer open uh, when he was writing the Aeneid. Um, but that kind of fairly simplistic attempt to make genetic connections between individual documents only tells maybe a small percentage of what was really going on when we're talking about early Christian interaction with their own cultural lore in the Hellenistic world, in the Eastern Mediterranean. They would have had access to what we think of as Greek cultural lore through all sorts of media. Uh, they would have seen plays, they would have gone to the arena uh, where certain, uh, uh, unfortunately, in, in executions, certain mythological stories were played out. They would have seen it on the megalithic artwork in some of the major cities in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean, some of which still survives. The sculpture, hundreds, thousands of pieces of sculpture which have survived and now exist uh, in, in museums. They would have heard of uh, Greek cultural lore through word of mouth, of course, children's fairy tales, political speeches, poetry recitations, all sorts of, of, of ways. And there would have been networks, uh, very advanced in some cases, networks of people connected and, and transmitting that cultural information. And some at some, in some cases, there being a cascade effect where um, everybody knows a certain story, whether, uh, and, and one of those people can be, you know, in the far reaches of Western Spain, and the other person can be in Syria, and they know the same story. And one of the reasons they did so is for elites, the educational system uh, was based often on rhetorical set pieces, which were in turn often based on uh, what we would call mythological stories. And the students would be drummed with these stories at an early age so that they would be permanently etched in their memory and they would be expected to expand on these stories and to write speeches based on these stories and to impersonate the characters in these stories. And so when you look at the cultural knowledge of what we call Greco-Roman mythology, the reason why it's so widespread and surprisingly uniform is because people are in constant dynamic uh, cultural interaction and networked through the educational system to learn these stories. Um, I guess the analogy today, if you could think of the Marvel franchise or the, the DC Comics franchise, I mean, everybody today, even if you have zero interest in superheroes, knows who Batman is and uh, Superman and Spider-Man. And they, even if they haven't seen the movies, uh, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, they might still have a lot of cultural information um, and might be able to pick that up through various media. And of course, now we have all, all different sorts of uh, social media. Um, and it, they, they might even, you know, have, have a basic knowledge of, you know, how Spider-Man became Spider-Man or, or that, uh, 
Superman is how Superman became Superman and that he's an alien and so on and so forth. They might have picked this up um, uh, without really ever having picked up a comic book. Um, the cultural information has basically bled into bled into the culture and um, through various networks. And that's uh, one way of thinking about dynamic cultural interaction in the ancient world when we think about how how deeply uh, the knowledge of mythology, what we call mythology, was uh, in the ancient Mediterranean. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that is very helpful. So then you spend most of the book identifying historiographical tropes in Greco-Roman stories, such as, you know, the incarnation of divinity, genealogies, geographical notices, dreams, the introduction of eyewitnesses, etc. And you show how the Gospels use similar literary tools. Why do you think we find these similarities in the Gospels? Well, here it's important to distinguish the historiographical tropes from the content of the mythic historiographies. Um, I sort of follow the life of Jesus and I talk about, as you mentioned, uh, incarnation, genealogy, um, dream narratives, resurrection narratives. Uh, I talk about the Magi. I talk about miracles. I talk about ascension stories and disappearance stories, kind of following the life of Jesus. Those are the contents of the stories. But the historiographical tropes um, are... Uh, a bit different. They're the techniques that the uh, gospel writers and, among other historians, used to make their stories seem as historiographical as possible. Uh, one of them you mentioned, uh, the geographical notices. Um, if, if you want to make your story sound uh, historiographical, you'll mention well-known places. You know, I, I was here... Um, at the Eiffel Tower or something like that, or I was at the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty uh, at a certain city, a well-known city, and so on and so forth. There are at least nine other tropes I discuss, uh, one of them being the, the mention of well-known persons, uh, typically rulers, that locate a, us in, in space and time. Um, so in the Gospel uh According to Luke, for instance, you have the mention of Caesar Augustus, and everybody knows Caesar Augustus, and he even goes into a bit more detail. He says, well, Jesus was born during the governorship of, of Quirinius, and he was governor of Syria at the time, and then everybody's like, oh, okay, well, you've done your homework. Nice job. I mean, we must be talking about a historical event. Uh, this is a more or less a rhetorical event. Uh, appeal, um, because uh, if modern dating is correct, uh, the author of this gospel is about a decade off, and that Quirinius uh, wasn't governor at the time. Uh, but the very fact that he was named is very significant and helps locate a person uh, in, in space and time. Another very broad historiographical trope is objectification. Uh, which simply means describing individually experienced phenomena as if they were fully knowable and observable by others. So if you take, for instance, the resurrection stories, a lot of scholarship uh, and thinking about these is that these were based on visions of Jesus coming back from 
the dead and uh, there was a whole field looking at uh, can we reconstruct these early Christian experiences of seeing the resurrected Jesus and so on and so forth. But really this, I take this not, uh, not in that way at all. I take this as basically a literary technique where the, the gospel writers are portraying uh, what must have been uh, subjective experiences or what we think of as subjective experiences and presenting them as if they were uh, widely perceived and almost scientifically known uh, events um, with multiple witnesses, you know, 12 witnesses, 500 witnesses uh, that everybody could see, that everybody could feel, taste, and touch. That's objectification. Another trope is just simply straightforward matter-of-fact presentation. You know, if I if I say that, you know, I today I got up, I, I turned off my alarm clock, I went and had eggs for breakfast, then I got on the train and I walked to work, and then I took a walk by the pond and I started walking on the pond and I got lunch and then I um, got some dinner. Well, the fact that I walked on the pond, um, I mean, I, I said it just like I said everything else. That very matter-of-fact presentation of, of even unusual or impossible events is a way, uh, is, is actually a rhetorical technique to kind of blend that in to uh, with other commonly uh, plausible kind of events. If you can mix in an implausible with a plausible, with a whole network of plausible events and speak of it as a fact, um, you can increase the uh, plausibility effect. Uh, another way of doing this is vivid presentation. You know, a narrative may be completely untrue, but if it's has full, uh, if it's full of uh, details and uh, even random circumstantial details, uh, like I describe exactly what toothpaste I used this morning, and I describe the feel of it and the uh, the, the feeling of effervescence in my mouth. I mean, the reality is I might or might not have brushed my teeth, but if I can, if I can describe it vividly, um, it gives you a sense that, oh, okay, he's describing something that he wants me to believe that actually happened. Another technique is the claim to accuracy, and often this is by an appeal to eyewitnesses. The trouble with eyewitnesses in a literary narrative is that it's uh, sometimes the case uh, when you look back uh, and at, at ancient Mediterranean literature, and you look at these eyewitnesses, and you peak scholars have realized, uh, and even the ancients have realized, that the eyewitnesses themselves are part of the story. That is, they have been constructed in the narrative. Uh, they have no independent existence, but something has happened in the narrative, and in the, an eyewitness has been appealed to. But the eyewitness is also a literary artifact, and this is a very special technique that the ancients, uh, and I assume uh, modern novelists use this technique all the time too to increase the reality effect of the story. Okay, another claim to accuracy is you can stage skepticism among the characters in the story. So uh, again, to use a gospel example here, um, in the resurrection account in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus appears very openly and is talking. Uh, the resurrected Jesus is talking to uh, the disciples on a mountain, and uh, it says very clearly that some were just looking at Jesus straight in his eye, looking at his body as he was talking, and they doubted. And apparently, uh, we are together, they doubted the fact of the resurrection. But here he was. 
And so if you can stage skepticism among the characters in the story, you can kind of get a sense that, well, you know, the reader might be a little bit skeptical that a guy rose from the dead, but if the characters in the story are also skeptical and their skepticism is looks stupid or is somehow overcome, as in the case of Doubting Thomas, where first of all, he doesn't believe, but when he gets to uh, uh, put his finger in Jesus' side, well, then everything's okay, right? So that staging of skepticism is another way that a literary artist will use to increase the plausibility of their story. We also have state, stated links of causation to give the impression that we're talking about real events. Again, the author of the, the Gospel of, of Matthew uses uh, an alternative report. He says, uh, you know, the soldiers were overpowered when Jesus was resurrected. An angel came, opened the tomb, and they were like dead men. And they, they finally, after the resurrection occurred, sort of woke back up, got their act together, and dragged themselves up to the high priest and said that the body was taken. And uh, the high priests say, hey, listen, we'll just say that you fell asleep and um, that the disciples came and stole the body. And uh, this story, says the author of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, was still current. And in fact, it has various manifestations in, in reception history. Uh, but the point here is that this story um, is put as a link to say, hey, the reason why there's this story that the disciples stole the body is because this earlier case where the soldiers actually lied to the high priest and the high priest said, well, you should uh, uh, continue to spread this lie, as it were, that the disciples stole the body. So there's a in the narrative itself, there's a kind of uh, alternative report that the disciples stole the body, but there's an explanation for that alternative report, which shows that it's a lie. So that's another way to increase plausibility. And finally, um, narratives can use the historiographical trope of inventing traces uh, of the past, such as uh, material artifacts said to survive in, in the present. And uh, I use the example of tomb tokens. Um, People resurrected in the ancient world, um, you know, there was this constant, there's this constant criticism of in the modern period that, well, hey, maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb. You know, I, I mean, maybe it was a simple mistake because honestly, they didn't really take a good look. Uh, and it was the women and so on and so forth uh, who were uh, taking care of the, the, the burial, yada, yada, yada. It, it, but the Gospels are very clear that, no, there is actually tokens that make sure that this is the right tomb. And the Gospel of John says that there was a head cloth uh, which was carefully folded and uh, which showed that it, that was actually Jesus' tomb. And you find this in other stories, too, uh, where they'll say things like Alcmena, the mother of Heracles, uh, she was also resurrected. She exited the tomb somehow, even though it was sealed. Uh, and we have some jewelry from her or certain pots uh, that we can identify and, uh, and some, some accounts, even uh, an inscription. Uh, and, and these invented traces are, are kind of interesting because uh, uh, you'll, you'll find things that say like, oh, and these artifacts still exist, but they're often in distant or inaccessible places like the piece of the true cross. The cross exists, but it exists as a relic in some very uh, obscure church or something like that. And you would have to take a pilgrimage 
to go actually verify that. This is another historiographical trope um, that is used throughout the Gospels. So just to be clear, in when the reader is going through the, the book, they're going to be uh, reading about incarnation and genealogy and Jesus divinely conceived and uh, and um, miracles and so on and so forth. And I'm going to be continually comparing these stories with other Greek and Roman stories to show that the same, uh, not, not exactly the same content, but the same historiographical tropes are being used to prove that these stories are historical or that they be taken as history. And this is the general technique of um, of of the genre uh, that I'm introducing, that is the um, uh, the uh, the uh, the kinds of, of uh, uh, the kind of technique um, which is called um, or which which I'm calling um, as mythic historiography. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. I, I appreciate those comparisons, and it's very thought provoking. Uh, so ultimately, you suggest that the Gospels, as you've said before, can be classified as mythic historiography. How do you see this finding um, impact or to change Gospel scholarship? Well, you know, on a practical level, I'm hoping that it will reopen conversation uh, of interpreting biblical stories and, uh, or, or between biblical scholars and and. Uh, experts in classical mythology. And I'm hoping it will encourage biblical scholars and people training for PhDs to uh, immerse themselves in the common Greco-Roman lore of the day and to go ahead and and take courses in classical mythology and uh, maybe even learn some of the tools of myth theory. Um, And here I can heartily recommend the book Theorizing Myth by Bruce Lincoln, but of course, there are endless, there's an endless literature about interpreting myth, both in the ancient and, and modern world. And um, the fact that the Gospels are now commonly uh, classified as biographies is in fact no hindrance to also thinking of them as myth. Um, and if, if we think of the Gospels as mythic, histori- uh, mythic historiography, then we can both combine uh, and reopen the lines of conversation between classics and biblical studies. But I guess more importantly, um, I'm attempting, I, uh, what I want to change, I guess, is uh, to put it bluntly, to sever the final tie between biblical studies and uh, a kind of apologetics uh the apologetical attempt to shore up Christian truth by uh, reading it and studying it and, in in effect, making it history. And by assuming that the concept of historicity uh, has um, uh, a connection, an inherent connection uh, to the truth of the narrative. I'm trying to advocate, and I do this mostly in the in the last chapter, uh, that that gospel truth, wh- whatever it is, can't make itself dependent on historicity because um, historicity uh, is 
It's very much a human concept and a, a human construction. History itself, in the sense of narratives relating past events, is very much a human construction, very much um, something that scholars constantly debate. And no one agrees on, uh, particularly about the historical Jesus. Anyone familiar with this literature will see endless rancor and debate. Um, so one wouldn't really want to base religious truth on a human construction. And that's what I really uh, advocate, that question your presuppositions. If your presuppositions are that historicity is going to shore up the truth of your religious belief, well, that's a philosophical issue that is a real problem and is based on your conditioning in Western culture. And you want to think seriously about how you think about truth. In my field, uh, there's a vast interest in biblical history, and I've already mentioned the uh, attempt to co-opt archaeology, uh, mostly in the, the mid-20th mid century, but, but continuing today, uh, archaeology is co-opted to support the biblical narrative. Um, all the, but I, I have to say, all the interest in biblical history, um, the history behind the Bible, since the Enlightenment has, in my view, a kind of theological undercurrent. Um, history is viewed as the standard and measure of truth because it gives us supposed access to what really happened or what is thought to have really happened. And so if a religion can use this discourse, can use the rhetoric of history, and present its own sacred documents as history, it can also present itself as true to people of modern sensibilities. And that's why I think it's often celebrated that Jesus does appear on the History Channel. And well, he should, but that's not necessarily a guarantee of the gospel truth. And that has to be realized that that involves a philosophical presupposition that has to be questioned in modern times, especially because uh, Christian apologists have the unfortunate habit of denigrating other religions, which they claim aren't based on historical facts, never having questioned the construction of those facts or having imagined that those facts are simply their own human constructions. What they end up doing is presenting a very highly ethnocentric discourse, which has been prevalent in the West, where Westerners tend to perceive truth in historical form and therefore present their true facts about reality and their stories as history uh, in order to show up, shore up the cultural value of their own heritage. And this is not only, again, this is not only a problem for religious communities. This is something that Westerners, um, and I'm very much a part of this Western culture, this is something that we have done for centuries. And we need to question that kind of thought process. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, as you wrote this book, I'm sure it involved, uh, you know, a lot of time, a lot of late nights, a lot of cups of coffee. As you wrote this this work, um, how did you envision um, readers kind of walking away from your book? Like, 
how how would you like to see just kind of the general reader changed because of your work? Well, I, again, on a practical level, I would love for biblical scholars, uh, secular folks, interested laypersons, um, people interested in superheroes, um, to be to get interested also in Greek and Roman mythology as part of our cultural heritage, as a great creative source for, for inspiration, for how we think of religious truth and um, religious narratives and for our own cultural narratives um, that uh, of late involve a lot of superheroes and transformations and uh, resurrections of sorts. And I'd also like uh, PhD students uh, and those mm-hmm working in biblical studies, entering biblical studies, to learn more of the theoretical models for reading uh, mythology and to get interested in that and to feel the need for that because there is a true need and um, we need to, in a way, renew our interest, uh, the very perennial interest between mythology and biblical studies. And of course, on a more deeper level, I want people to walk away changed by having simply broader questions of how gospel narratives arose as literature. Uh, We've gotten into the rut, I think, of assuming very um, simplistically that these narratives are are history and therefore we can compare the history of the gospels with the history of other Greco-Roman narratives. But we haven't done the real intellectual work of, of, of asking, what are these narratives in the first place? What are what is intended by these narratives? Um, they're certainly not history books. The Gospels are certainly not history books. Um, they can be used uh, to, with pain, labor, sweat, uh, sometimes blood, to find out you know who the so-called historical Jesus is. But in the end, that's a construction. Um, and. So the broader question here is using this kind of literature, what can and can we not know about Jesus? Uh, because people have actually killed over this issue. Um, and it's important to, to know the limits of knowledge here based on the literature that we have. And finally, I would love for people to, to be changed in, in thinking more seriously always about how to do comparison in an in-depth way. And I hope sincerely that I've been a model for that and showing that we need to go beyond superficial comparisons, which in the end just um, annoy people, um, annoy scholars who are trying to do serious work um, and get other people real riled up for no reason. Um, I've only provided a sort of foretaste of of in-depth comparison, and I'm sure that others can go deeper. And that's what excites me, that um, the methods uh, that I use in the book can can be improved and others can find more um, if they do the comparisons uh, with a real thoughtful theoretical framework and careful method. Um, there's much work to be done here. Absolutely. Yeah, it is exciting to see where where it will head next. And so speaking of the future, um, what projects are you working on next before you go? Would you mind sharing with our audience? Sure. Uh, I've 
just finish a book on, on ancient figures who um, become angels or angel-like beings called daimones in the ancient world. Daimones being uh, different than, than demons, of course, um, mediating figures who have uh, superhuman powers, but very human emotions. And this is another comparative study uh, looking at how early Christian discourse of what I'm calling angelification interacted with, again, the broadly uh, Greco-Roman and more specifically Platonic discourses about becoming what the ancients called a daimon or a superhuman being, both in this life and the next. That project is actually finished. I'm seeking for a publisher. The current writing project that I'm uh, writing on and excited right now is I have the uh, somewhat of a background in what's called Gnostic or Nagamati studies. And I'm just fascinated on how and why some early Christian groups came to conceive of the creator of this world, uh, the Jewish deity, as an evil being. And we see this idea, which is quite unthinkable, I think, to Christians today, but springing up seemingly independently among a variety of Christian groups, none of them, of course, who, uh, uh, in a sense, um, uh, became uh, part of what we know today as uh, early Catholicism, but a, ver a variety of groups um, who thought of the creator of this world as an evil being and thought that that is in fact what their Bibles said. Um, I'm looking uh, at, at native Egyptian traditions that portrayed the Jewish creator Yahweh as a form of Seth, uh, a god of evil and chaos. But I'm also looking at the exegesis that is the interpretation, early Christian interpretation of Paul, mainly, uh, John, the Gospel of John, and the Hebrew Bible to see why certain Christians thought, based on the Bible, that the character of the Creator was evil. Um, and I see this, and, and seeing this character, not based on, uh, say, their own subjective experience, but as rooted in the biblical texts and stories themselves. That's an idea that is truly fascinating, perhaps even frightening, but uh, certainly um, interesting and worth exploration. Right. Well, that sounds very exciting. So, Dr. Litva, thank you so much for donating your time. Uh, and again, you. I just want to reiterate that you know, this is a very thought-provoking and stimulating work that I think all students of gospel studies will want to be familiar with. Um, for our listeners, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Again, I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read. Thank you.